that we do acknowledge these particular part of the country as belonging to the Wurundjeri people who are part of our Kulin nations. How many here know the five nations of the Kulin? The question I ask at university and interestingly very few of our lecturers can answer that question as well. I, I, I'm not going to give you a, a class in it, I just wish to acknowledge that we are part of a whole nation of Aboriginal ancestors and this land was sung and danced for thousands of generations and to some degree is still being sung. I would just like to acknowledge that I feel very much part of that history and that something about the respect for that history. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, great. I've learned something already. <laughs> Look, um, people ask you a whole bunch of questions that would be shocking and offensive. Um, what's it like to get questions asked like that? For example... Um, what does it mean to be an Indigenous person? Inferring, we've talked about this before, so it's okay if I ask it, um, inferring that you're not black enough to be Aboriginal. I don't know whether you saw my knuckles starting to go white. Yeah. I was speaking at a conference in Brisbane two weekends ago and um, I'm doing a, a doctorate at the National University, the National Centre for Indigenous Studies, and I was just showing some of my preliminary work and a woman walked up to me, she said, you don't even look Aboriginal. And you just get sucked in the guts. And it happens all the time at the university where I work. My colleagues, people that I've worked with now for over five years, constantly say to me, oh, you're too political. Oh, look, all this stuff about community is just a waste of time. All this stuff, why can't you just be like the rest of us? You're all, you're all the same anyway. Just be like the rest of us. Stop this trying to be different. And it's very painful because it's taken Aboriginal people 228 years to get to this place in our country where we can start to openly identify without all the constraints of not being recognised as part of the population of Australia, <clears throat> which is what the 67 referendum was about. Federation deliberately wiped Aboriginal people off the map because it enacted Federation on the terra nullius um, you know, the, the colonisers said there's no people here, therefore it's an empty land. And Federation built it, Federation on the fact that Aboriginal people didn't exist in their eyes or exist as a force or a, as a people at all. So this constant nullifying us that somehow we don't exist or that somehow we just must get on and be part of the population and be, behave technically, you know, you're naughty children, get on with is so painful. It's um, a complete denial of who we are and a denial of our history, mm. a denial of the fact that this country and the more we explore DNA, the more we explore the history of humankind, we're beginning to understand that Aboriginality may have been here a lot longer than 60,000 years. To, to wipe that history away is, is I think to wipe something of ourselves away. So can I just butt in there? Yep. Can you uh, explain to us what it, what it means to be an Aboriginal person? So people inferring that you're not Aboriginal, what does it mean to be Aboriginal? For me, um, growing up in a small country town that had a, put a lot of energy into denying Aboriginal people a place to walk down a street... <clears throat> or even to walk into a shop, 
And I participated in that because my family was so busy. We had a certificate on the wall that said we were recognised as European, therefore we could be European, although I go back two generations and we didn't look very European. Um, we were very proud of that. But it didn't fit. None of it seemed to fit. Now, this is incredibly subjective stuff. And that's what colonisation has destroyed the most, Aboriginal subjectivity, a sense of who we are as both a person and as a people. And that is what non-Aboriginal people in this country, including current refugees, are allowed to have. You're allowed to have that subjectivity, that sense of wholeness, that sense of who you are as a complete human being has been denied to Aboriginal people. And I can remember when I started to explore my family tree on the recommendation of some of my aunties who, as I said, could not hide their faces because they looked more Aboriginal than I do um, and suddenly begin to discover these streams. I come from, I have a connection on the Nullarbor here in Western Victoria and, and up towards the Murray River that I'm saying to them, this fits, this, this feels right. This feels like that we have, we belong to this land. I feel like I'm part of it. I feel like my spirit can talk to this place. I feel at home in the landscape. I, I don't want to be parted from it. It makes me feel who I am. And I think that's something we all need to think about. Who do we feel we are? Because when that's taken away from you, we end up with all the psychosocial issues that you saw up here on the screen. That denial of our basic humanity, but our denial of our identity, however we wish to claim it. But what makes us feel whole, um, and to tear that apart, is to tear our humanity apart. Is about the best way I can explain it. Does that sound reasonable? I've been I've been grappling with that for a couple of years now. That is very deep. Anyway, <coughs> a simple, maybe a bit more a simple question: uh, Are there Aboriginal people living in Ringwood and around yeah. the place? There are. It's about um, four thousand of us out um, Ringwood, Knox, um, Yarra Valley. So yeah, there are about four thousand. I think I think there's about seven or eight hundred young people. We have more young people than old people. So we have one of the richest concentrations, apart from Dandenong and northern suburbs um, in Melbourne. How many of you, you, you wouldn't recognise this, would you? No. <laughs> okay. But if you came to Mullum, you might. Yeah. Um, we'll just jump onto a bit of language. Um, Indigenous, Aboriginal, Aborigines. <laughs> how do we engage with the topic without offending people, understanding different people, Aboriginal people, might prefer different terminology? It's a hard one. In 2010, <clears throat> we agreed across this country, across Australia, that we would use the term Aboriginal to talk about both Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people because it's a heck of a mouthful when you've got to constantly say Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. It's a, it's a, it's a large mouthful. We prefer to use that term... Um, in research, you'll often find that term used and an explanation around why that term used. When we talk about Indigenous, we're a little bit more sensitive about that because we have Indigenous trees out here, we have Indigenous animals. 
and the 1967 referendum separated us out of the Flora and Fauna Act. Up until 67, to some degree, Aboriginal people, and this is quite messy, um, and the history's a little bit difficult to tear apart, but up until about 67, Aboriginal people were still part of what was known as the Flora and Fauna Act. We were animals and vegetables to some degree. Sometimes finding our, weaving back, finding our histories, we go to stock lists. They'll, they'll list the cattle and the chickens and the pigs and then there'll be a couple of bungs and some males and a number of children, piccaninnies. So for us to, to be spoken about as Indigenous puts us back into that history, which we are very sensitive about. So we like the word Aboriginal. Aborigine, we find a bit offensive. It doesn't actually describe it. it it's, a, it's a more objective term. So when you're thinking about talking about Aboriginal people, use the term Aboriginal as of 2010. Great. Um, what's the deal with calling someone auntie and uncle? What does that mean? Um, yeah, what does it mean? It's a, that's a really difficult one. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> how, how many of you here have special relationships with older people that you call auntie? It's about like that. Um, when we started work on Mullum Mullum Indigenous Gathering Place here in Ringwood, we started the discussions in about 2003 and we have um, the church at the Anglican, ex-Anglican church at Ringwood East and a building in Croydon. We, um, I uh, applied to go onto the board, the committee, and immediately my mail started arriving with Auntie Janet on it. And I have no idea where that came from and I have no idea who made that decision. <laughs> but it is a privilege because it denotes... Um, and I even loathe saying this, Peter, but it denotes a sense that people think of you with some respect and that you have the community at heart, not yourself at heart. So it's about touching into the much bigger picture, about caring for the broader range of people rather than just for oneself and one's own family and that you're prepared to enact that with some dignity and respect. So that's about the closest I could come. So today we're exploring what this wound looks like. We've got a little, uh, just a one minute little clip that starts to uh, explain a bit more about the realities of, of what we see today. So that little one minute clip. Information from government data over the last few years highlights some troubling statistics when it comes to the quality of life of Indigenous Australians. Despite the fact that 75% of Indigenous Australians no longer live in remote communities, they still have a life expectancy gap of at least 10 years less than non-Indigenous Australians. Indigenous Australians also have an unemployment rate three times that of non-Indigenous Australians and are more than twice as likely to be in the lowest income bracket. Nearly half of all Indigenous children are living in jobless families and one in five Indigenous adults reported being a victim of violence or the threat of violence in the last year. While only 2.5% of the population identify as Indigenous, 27% of the total adult prison population and nearly 50% of youth in detention centres are Indigenous. 
On top of this, in 2007, an Indigenous woman was 23 times more likely to be arrested than a non-Indigenous woman. The suicide rate for Indigenous people is double that of the non-Indigenous population. The infant mortality rate is also double for Indigenous families when compared to rates for non-Indigenous families. Okay. <laughs> well, I can just take a moment. You flick that next slide up. Like that's, is that not unbelievable in Australia? I just want to recognise right now that, you know, <clears throat> we need to take a moment about that. Yeah. I mean, even, even just that first one, the suicide rate, it's unbelievable. Are you okay to talk? Do you want to just try and um, interact with that a bit? Um, are those statistics just for the Northern Territory? I mean, the assumption is that this is not in our local backyard, these statistics. How do you uh, respond to that woundedness? That is, those statistics are the results of the psychosocial lifestyle. <clears throat> Here in Victoria this year, which is, what, nine months into the year, I think we've had about 15 suicide funerals. I don't know how many murder funerals we've had. Um, when you think of our population is one of the lowest in the in the country, along with the deaths of babies. Um, and this this is a really complex issue. In when you think about living in a city like Melbourne, why aren't Aboriginal people part of the whole community, therefore living that same lifestyle as everybody else? And of course, it's not just about Aboriginal people either. There are a lot of people that live in the lower socio-economic um, stratas of society who are experiencing similar things. But when it comes to the expression of the pain of living dislocated and marginalised lifestyles, Aboriginal people have those awful statistics, uh, on top, the, the awful way of living them out on top of it. <clears throat> and I think this goes ultimately to the complexities of living within what we feel are our homelands what we know are our own homeland, this is our land, this is where our ancestors, that great stream of histories come from. But somehow we're not allowed, and I need to emphasise that, to live as Aboriginal people. And generation after generation of what we call transgenerational trauma, and we have the most amazing genome maps of when during the, particularly here in Victoria, the history from 1834 through to the 1870s was one of the worst histories. And I forget, does any of you know Portland Bay, Hamilton, Warrnambool? Now that's where I come from down there. That area, we have archaeological evidence that says there was about 50,000 Aboriginal people living in that area alone, in houses, in communities. By 1844, when the protector of Aboriginals came through that area, there were less than 30 people left. Some of that was deliberate disease. Some of that was... Ma a lot of that was massacres. And the stories are horrific. If you ever go back and read the history, you, you do need to read the history. It is awful. 
but it is the very thing that's created our federation. The massacre of tens of thousands of, of Aboriginals across this part of Australia is the very thing that has created us. Now, out of that violence, um, whether it was rape or murder or just even the theft of land, and by 1860 we had native police brought down from other states roaming across this um, this state, herding the fragments of Aboriginal tribal people left and massacre, massacring them or herding them onto missions. The missions sort of started around the 1850s, 1860s. And on those missions, massacres were carried out by the mission people. They had to keep score. We have very good documentation of this. I'm not going to tell you some of those stories. They are horrific. The mass, the mass massacre of children, of babies, of women, poisoned, you know, Sunday picnics, poisoned porridge. Only for the Aboriginal people. We need to hear this history. It is the very thing that has generated federation. Now, we know that psychosocial trauma that comes from that telescopes through the generations. So one person affected or a whole community is affected or what's left of communities affected by that violence, they then um, generate children and constantly that psychosocial impact brings us up into the 21st century where those Aboriginal people are still living with the impact of that trauma. That's where we have the history. Understanding the history affects today. Um, so statistics are a... a um, an indicator of something. We'll just go to the next clip. It's it's six minutes long, but I think it, it takes us back to the root of colonisation, which is where this all started. So this is a history lesson for six minutes. The beginning of our story came in 1788 with the arrival of the first fleet and what is called colonisation, a term used to describe the process when a country sends settlers to a new place to establish control over an area and its indigenous population. Even before Captain Cook landed on our shores though, there were other factors shaping the political and cultural climate of the time. Starting in the mid 15th century, the church made several decrees which were called papal bulls. At this time in history, the church was extremely powerful and was directly involved in the way many countries were ruled. Because of this, their decrees were influential in shaping policies and mindsets. This was certainly the case when it came to the period of European colonisation across the globe. The words of one of these pronouncements gave explorers of the time full and free permission to invade, search out, capture and subjugate the Saracens and Pagans and any other unbelievers and to reduce their persons into perpetual slavery. Even though England had gone through many political and religious changes by the time Captain Cook sailed to Australian shores, the influence of this kind of thinking still had a significant impact. When the British explorers landed in Australia, they didn't see evidence of use of the land according to Western criteria. There was no farming, no uh, obvious to them, although Aboriginals had used fire farming successfully for many years. Because of this lack of evidence of use of the land, management of the land, uh, government over the land, they uh, concluded that the land was empty 
uh, belonged to no one, and hence the, the doctrine of terra nullius was uh, used as a description of Australia. Uh, having determined that the state of terra nullius existed, the explorers decided that the land was free uh, for occupation and free for discovery and free to, to manipulate uh, as they wished. When the first fleet landed in Australia, the English declared it terra nullius, and this remained the official position of the Australian government for more than 200 years. This process of colonisation affected me in a, in, a, in a couple of ways, uh, in the sense that uh, my Aboriginal parents and grandparents were dispossessed and displaced. But on my grandfather's side, he was uh, brought out from Vanuatu, uh, picked up out of a fishing canoe and brought to Australia to cut cane and forced uh, into uh, la uh, labouring on a farm in Bundaberg in central North Queensland. The, the difficulty is this, is this that it's hard then to get a proper perspective on socialisation processes because what gets passed down is the, the enormous hurt and, and disorientation that comes from losing one's land, losing one's identity, losing one's goal and purpose in life. And this is passed down from my grandparents to my parents and from my parents to me. And so I've had to deal with this disquiet and, uh, and dysfunction that, that I couldn't explain. So if we take a step back, we see two powerful factors at work in the beginning of our history together. The legacy of the papal bulls and the mandate to conquer regardless of indigenous populations, together with what now has been recognised as a legal falsehood, the ruling of terra nullius. Both of these historical factors undermined and even dismissed the inherent value of indigenous Australians as equals made in the image of God. Indigenous Australians were dispossessed of their land and dislocated from their culture. That's part of our shared story and it still has consequences to this day. We're not suggesting that we can go back and make this right. Obviously we can't. And we're not saying that we should be dwelling on this unnecessarily. That's not going to be helpful. But we do recognise that non-Indigenous Australians settled on the land of Indigenous Australians and proceeded to build on it the nation we know today. This is the land that you and I worship on together every week in our churches. So this leaves us with a complex situation to wrestle with as Australians living in this land together today. What do we do with this fundamental injustice that is at the heart of a long-standing wound in the spirit of our nation? As Christians, we know the gospel can be summed up as love the Lord your God and love your neighbour as yourself. We need to bring that heart to the process of seeking to understand our Indigenous neighbours. Okay. 
that is a tough question. What's, what's your initial response to that? We've kind of un- uncovered, I guess, the root of where, where this all started. Um, how do we move forward? It, that's, I think that's the, the toughest question that we've all got to face. Not just non-Indigenous people, but us Aboriginal people, because how do we move forward? One of the best um, statements I've heard recently was, we don't want you all cowering on your knees and apologies or taking responsibility for what happened 228 years ago or what's happened over that 228 years. I think what we want more than anything else is, I think it's several things. One is to be enabled to live our lives as Aboriginal people, so to create ourselves, to to do the things that we need to do with the authority uh there is a young people's movement at the moment trying to think about how we might have our own governance. And there are some interesting things happening around that discussion that we have a, a separate governance within this, this country. Um, part of me thinks that that's not such a bad idea, but I don't quite know how to work on the ground. The other thing is about disabling and disassembling the structures of privilege. This nation is remarkably privileged um, although I know it's it's struggling at the moment, but how do we dissemble those structures that have enabled so much privilege that Aboriginal people live dis- that that live unprivileged lives in their own country? That is a I think a, a huge question. I think that's something that the churches in themselves can think about. How do we destructure some of this privilege that enables many of us to live lives that are comfortable? Don't forget any kind of comfort and privilege always comes at the cost of somebody else. Any kind of wealth building, any kind of wealth creation, whether it's industrial, whether it's corporatization, whatever, always comes at the cost of someone else or something else. And in this country, first of all, that comes at the cost of the land. This land has, has in many ways paid a huge cost, um, let alone what the people have paid, what this land has paid. And I think that's one of the first places to start to disassemble privilege is to start thinking about how we may use this land in more effective and more gracious ways. A little bit, let's go back to, you know, love God, with that that statement about walk humbly on this earth. Um, Aboriginal people, it's interesting that Captain Cook and Joseph Banks wrote in their journals about the idyllic and uncluttered lifestyles of the Aboriginal people. This is after they did the destruction at um, Botany Bay around that area. They then began to see that they were returning to England to these awful, awful lifestyles in comparison to how Aboriginal people lived. So I think that's one of the first things we need to think about. But I think it, it's up to it's up to all of us to do this in how we... And I think we're going to be forced to do this over this maybe next 100 years, to force to think about how we can live more humbly on this planet and how we're going to have to compromise our privilege. I'm a privileged person. I have to own that, although I live a very simple and humble lifestyle. I have a job. I work in a university. I can do my studies. So I am very much aware of the privilege that I have and the cost that that comes from other people. Because I'm not paying for those degrees, I am being paid to work, I have a house and I'm very much aware that I'm in a place 
way outside a lot of my own people and it fills me with with a lot of unease. Hence, I do an immense amount of work for nothing around and through the community. So they're the, they're the kinds of things I need to, particularly in relationship to being humble within this country. I'm not sure how that's going to be taken up or what that means. That's where I think some of the work needs to begin as human beings. How do we live more humbly without it coming to a crisis? Interestingly, over the weekend, that argument's begun to happen, hasn't it? With the storm in South Australia. Is it the coal-fired power stations or is it wind power? Who's causing? But who caused the storm? How was the storm caused? So I think some of these questions we're going to be faced with, whether we like it or not, human beings will always push it to crisis point. Human beings very rarely pull back and start to do something before the crisis enforces us to do something. So that's one thing. But the other thing is to own the history, is not to let the ignorance remain it's too, it's a very complex, it is, I mean, my research is about um, looking at Aboriginal mythology because that was their law, L-A-W, uh, in relationship to relationship with land, with trees, with animals and with the waters, that to sustain the whole, we need to live another way. So my research is looking at how do I give voice to the land and the waters, let them speak let them have their presence. They are not something to be used and abused like the, like we do to people. The land is, is, is a resource that needs to have its own power and its own place in all our conversations. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So before you start freaking out about that whole land thing, it's in the, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible about land, so that's cool. Um, I've just been studying it last week. Um, so, look, as white, mainly white fellas here, we just love a simple answer, wouldn't we? we? We just love for you to say, well, if you do this and this, we can fix it. But as you can tell, our history informs today, and we've got a lot of questions we have to hold in tension. So, we're going to hand over to Troy now. Thank you for coming. I'm sorry I couldn't make it any easier. <laughs> but also, we just want to honour you and recognise the, the cost for Aunty Janet to come and hear this stuff. So thank you. Yeah, Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. But they don't know the pain in me Cause they can't know what I can see I'm surrounded by misery I'd like to be Always free Far away some things to think about, maybe to just digest. I suppose the question that comes to my mind as I listen to Aunty Janet is a question that some people might ask. 
what's this got to do with me? I live in Victoria. I don't know an indigenous person. I wasn't there 200 years ago. I didn't cause all of this. What's this got to do with me? A religious leader once came to Jesus. And if you open up the Bible to Luke chapter 10, the religious leader comes to Jesus and asks a simple question. Teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is, what must I do according to law, God's laws, God's covenant, God's practices in order to be part of the age to come when he sets up his kingdom, his heaven here on earth? And Jesus replies, well, you're an expert of law and Torah. You should know the answer. What do you say? So he replied to him in a fairly familiar response, Jewish times then. He said, well, I think you should love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul and with all your strength. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus turned to him and said, you have answered well. Go and do this and you will live. But then he said, in order to justify himself, who is my neighbor? That is, how far must I extend God's covenant laws of loving him with all my heart, mind, soul and strength and loving my neighbor as myself so that I can be justified and in the right and with you, God? To which Jesus told a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too another religious leader within the temple, a Levite. And when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, a despised Samaritan to Jewish people. As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus then asked the religious leader a, a simple mathematical equation. Which out of the three do you think was a neighbor? The expert of the law replied, couldn't even mention the name, through gritted teeth, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus wasn't doing any moralizing here, urging people to be kind to others in need. 
Jesus wasn't doing any humanizing here, like people you dislike. Jesus was radicalizing people here. He was saying the bounds of Torah and covenant and loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself has no bounds. Do you want to be just and justified before God? What's this got to do with me? Whilst we live on this land that most of us arrived here either by boat or plane and joined the people, soft word, who were already here. Whilst we live on the privilege of this, of this land, if we were to ask that question of Jesus, what's this got to do with me? I wonder if he might tell us a story. There was once a man who went from Jerusalem down to Jericho. (laughs) So what I'm asking of us over this next month is for us to go on a journey at New Community to listen and to learn and to hear the voice of God. Because if we do that a little bit better, we'll do him a little bit more service to shine and to be salt and to be light. It was said this of Jesus. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might be dead to sin and live for what is right. I like this next phrase. For by his wounds, you and I can be healed. Healed. There is a wound in the spirit of our nation, I believe. We all need a healing. God seems to be in the business accomplishing that I can't he can thank you amen once you were like sheep who wandered away but now you've turned your to your shepherd guardian of your souls what's this got to do with me what's this got to do with me We're going to hear a song right now. And for us to pause, and for some of you, you might want to sing with Pete. For some, you might want to pray. For some, you might just want to listen. There's a beautiful little prayer that was given to a young little boy centuries ago by an older man about hearing God speak. There's a prayer that went something like this. Speak, Lord. For your servant is listening. I wonder as you hear this song, you might adopt a posture that prays that simple prayer, childlike prayer. You might open up your heart and mind to hear what he might say. What's this got to do with me? Here's my heart.